somebody? Okay, well, thank you very much, everybody, for coming. Welcome to Oxford University Department for Continuing Education, and welcome to this session on Spotlight on Archaeology. Hopefully, you've all come here to find out a little bit more about what archaeology involves, and also what we do here in the department, what you could sign up for, what, you could, uh, what opportunities you could become uh, involved in. So what do we do here in terms of archaeology? Well, the short answer is that we do a huge amount. We have a wide range of courses in archaeology, ranging from single days to a part-time DPhil or a doctorate in archaeology, and you can do everything in between. So what we'll do today is talk a little bit about archaeology in general and what's why we do archaeology, and then also about some of the um, opportunities that we have on offer here. But before I go on, I'll just say a little bit about myself. Uh, my name is Alison MacDonald. I'm based here in the department. I'm a departmental lecturer in archaeology. And um, I've been here for about 20 years teaching on the archaeology program. And I'm delighted that my colleague here, Jane Harrison, uh, who's a tutor in archaeology here, and also the project officer of the Archaeology of East Oxford project. Uh, Jane is here to talk about that project, a community archaeology project that you may well also be interested in finding out about. Um, at the end of the session, I'll put up a slide with our names on and our contact details, so you're very welcome to take down our email addresses if you want to contact us any time in the future. But of course, we'll be here at the end to answer questions if you want to ask us anything at all. Okay, so I'll start off by saying a little bit about archaeology and the diversity of the evidence that we have as archaeologists to use, what you would be looking at if you were uh, on one of our courses here, the opportunities that you get involved in, and then I'll go over the whole archaeology program ranging from the Saturday day schools, the weekends, the weekly classes, which are 10-week long courses, undergraduate level courses, postgraduate level courses, and online courses. So even if you're not based in Oxford and can't come to Oxford very regularly, you can also do archaeology at the University of Oxford. So then, what exactly is archaeology? You've probably got some idea, you're, you've got an interest, you may even be involved in a local society or have done some archaeology already. Um, one way to put it is that archaeology is all about people. It's about societies and communities, past, present and future. And as archaeologists, we look at a whole range of evidence to see what people have left behind and how we can reconstruct their lives, how they organise themselves as a community and how they were living on a day-to-day -day basis from very earliest times right up until now, really. You can study contemporary archaeology, archaeology of the present times. And we can look at the small details of people's lives from the sorts of artefacts that have been found, perhaps a finely decorated bone comb for, for combing hair, or perhaps a, a quite mundane ceramic vessel that was used for cooking, but nevertheless, that can tell us a lot about how people lived and, and how they um, ate and, and what they were doing on a day-to-day -day basis. And of course, we are interested in all sectors of society. It's perhaps quite easy to look at those at the very top. They perhaps leave a lot of information about themselves, the rulers and decision makers. But when we're looking at material culture, we can look at the whole range of society, just the things that everyday people left behind uh, the, the things that uh, they left to make a mark on the world, perhaps a scratch of graffiti on a wall or a, a simple cutting tool. So everyone leaves behind bits and bobs about themselves, and, and we can look at that. And we can also look at people from a wider perspective. We can look at the, the places that they lived in. We can look at landscape studies, so settlements and houses, the whole environment. 
And up on the screen here, we've got some aspects of archaeology. At the top, for example, we've got an aerial photography of aerial photograph uh, of a building. We've got a series of rooms. You're looking down onto the building. You're looking at the masonry walls there, the, the floor surfaces and, and the, the, the layout of the rooms. And excavation of a site like this can show how a building was used over time, perhaps how it was set up in the first place, how it may have been renovated or enlarged, or even abandoned, ultimately abandoned. So we can, after days and days of archaeological uh, digging, we can uh, remove the things that were left behind, the artefacts that we have to remove carefully, or the soil and the debris, and then we can record all this information, put it all together to see how people use the building at different times. But of course, it's not always easy to work out what we're looking at. It can sometimes be quite bewildering. There's not always a clear-cut answer to the questions that we might ask. So we need a good grounding in archaeology to help us with the process of looking at the past. So these two looking a bit bewildered, but hopefully with a bit of archaeological expertise under their belts, they'll be able to, to work out what exactly they're looking at. We've got another shot here in the bottom corner, this time an aerial photograph of a hill fort. Um, this was uh, built in the prehistoric period, the Iron Age in Britain, so the, the period before the Roman period, we're talking about the first millennium BC. And from a great deal of archaeological work that's been done on hill forts, we know a huge amount about them, even though there are still many more questions that we need to ask. But what we do know, the uh, hill forts like this were often built on hilltop sites, although not always. And they tended to have big ramparts, so big earthwork uh, features, and then ditches. So we seem to, it seems to imply that they were easily defendable places where people could live inside, in this open area inside. And with all the archaeological work that's been done, we know that people were living inside hill forts. But also, we know that people were living outside hill forts in the surrounding landscape, they may well have come into the hill fort at times of threat as they were so easily defendable with these ramparts. But of course, building such a feature in the landscape with these huge ramparts that are sometimes 10 meters high, huge, or sorry, two meters high and 10 meters deep, this sort of thing, um, it must have been a huge effort, a huge um, organization on part of the community. So it's likely that they had great symbolic value as well. So it's important to look at a whole range of functions when you're looking at features like this. A hill forts may be a sign of the wealth and the power of the local community, a clear sign that the community was making a mark on the landscape. And all the work that's been done on uh, hill forts, we know a lot about what was going on inside. We know about the um, pits uh, that people used to bury um, commodities like grain, these pits were sealed and the grain could be kept for a long time. So they were a bit like banks, they were, were areas where things could be kept safe. And also they were places where people could come together, could congregate. This was before the sorts of towns that we know about from a later period. So before so the sort of civilized or civic centers of the Roman period, there was a lot of uh, community uh, getting together for festivals <coughs> and um, meetings and celebrations. So a lot was going on even, even before the Roman period when we start to think of towns in a more organized fashion. So with all this archaeological evidence, we can build up a really detailed picture of people even before uh, the historic period, and we've got documents to help us. 
And of course, we have many different artifacts that are found on excavations. They tell us a great deal about how people lived. We've got, for example, this finely made arrow. Uh, this is um, a beautiful arrow arrowhead from the Bronze Age. And then we've also got, from a later period, the Anglo-Saxon period, this artifact here, which is in the British Museum, sorry, the Ashmolean Museum, not far from here. You may well have seen it. It's the Alpha Jewel. And it's thought to be the handle of a pointer. Originally, there would have been a stick here, and it would have been used to follow the lines of a page in a book. But obviously, it's a very finely made piece. It even says it was made for Alfred. It's got this on the side, commissioned by Alfred. So it tells us a lot about Anglo-Saxon society, about somebody who had the skills to make this and the person in power who had the, the wealth to commission such a finely made piece. So um, all of this can tell us a lot about society. And why, in fact, do we want to do archaeology in the first place? What, what is it, why is it that it, it's um, something that really is important to us? Well, of course, we all like to learn about the past, our place uh, in, in the past and the future. Um, it opens the past up to us. It gives us a sense of perhaps who we are and, and of our own identity. And it perhaps also enhances our appreciation of the places in which we live, the places that we go to, why these places are important to us. And um, all of these things brought together, um, we can study through archaeology. I don't know if anyone has any thoughts about any of that before I go on. So I'm just going to spend a few more minutes now looking at the diversity of the evidence because as archaeologists we have a great deal of evidence to bring together all of this at our fingertips. So we undertake work that produces a great deal of evidence, all the things that we dig up, the physical remains, the material culture, but also the data, the maps and the plans and the records. All of this we need to have the skills to analyse, to interpret and then publish. Of course, we need to disseminate this information to the wider world. And all these different techniques are worth talking about a little bit. So I'll start first with survey. I don't know if anyone has done any archaeological survey, taken part in a, a survey in a local society. But the sorts of things that we can do as archaeologists include topographical survey, geophysical survey, and aerial photographic survey. So topographical survey is a bit like earthwork survey, where we're looking at humps and bump bumps in the ground. The, ditches and the ramparts of a hill fort, exam for example. And this can be done with quite basic surveying equipment, uh, a plane table, which is quite a simple instrument, or more complicated surveying equipment that you'd be able to use if you were a student here, a total station, for example, which is a combination of a theodolite and a EDM, or an, an electronic distance meter. And together, these uh, instruments can use, be used to look at points on an earthwork feature to start building up a, a picture of what that feature looks like. And this can be combined with other equipment like GPS, which you may be familiar with, uh, global positioning systems, which provide information about location using the global navigation satellite system. So we have surveying equipment that we can use. There's also geophysical survey. Um, this is looking at below ground archaeology, so with, even without digging, you can say a lot about the below ground archaeology. Uh, resistivity survey is based on uh, the resistance of archaeology below the ground uh, to the passage of an electric current, so it's based on the electric current. Uh, magnometry, which is based on uh, variations in the subsoil's magnetic characteristics, 
and also ground-penetrating radar, which relies on high-frequency radio waves, so quite, quite sophisticated equipment to, to look at uh, archaeology without having to actually disturb it. Another new technique that you'll find out about, um, no doubt, if you come here, is airborne LIDAR, which stands for light detection and ranging. And this is a relatively new technique that we can use as archaeologists, and it's particularly useful for looking at archaeology through woodland um, from above. It can penetrate through the, the forest canopy and reveal the archaeology below ground, So that's or, or on the ground. That's really a, a really useful new technique. And of course, aerial photography has been used for a long time. It's really effective in looking at earthwork features and, and crop marks in the soil and, and in the ground. Also, fieldwork survey um, is another technique that groups of people can uh, take part in where you go across ploughed fields and record the scatters of pottery and tile and other artefacts that, that are revealed um, after the ploughing process. So moving on from survey to excavation and post-excavation analysis, I'm sure you'll have seen uh, people excavating either uh, out in the field or perhaps on television. Um, as students on, uh, at the department, you can be involved in archaeological excavation where you have a trowel and you start digging layer by layer the, the uh, site that you're on, um, looking at the site formation processes and stratigraphy, the layers which have been built up over time to start revealing the past of that site, the past usage of the site. And also, by looking at all the material that you gather, you need to take time after the excavation to look at all the artefacts um, that, that are found in the excavation, perhaps architectural features, for example, the bricks and the tiles. Um, maybe if you're looking at a Roman site, you'll have wall painting and mosaics, even pieces of window glass, all the sorts of things that you might find on an excavation. Also, the artefacts that people who were living there might have left behind, for example, the household goods, the pottery, the metalwork, perhaps the personal adornments that they had with them, perhaps a, a piece of jewellery, for example. And if you're working in a waterlogged uh, site, uh, you may well find organic remains, so leather, textiles, uh, even wood are sometimes preserved. These organic remains might be preserved in waterlogged conditions. You might also find animal bones, so that can tell us about what people were eating, how they were looking after their livestock, um, and also human bones if you're perhaps working on a cemetery site. And by looking at the uh, human bones, you can tell a lot about past societies. And then environmental evidence when you're looking at pollen and seeds and plant remains, that can tell us a lot about diet and the environment. And many of these uh, artifacts feel uh, feed into scientific analysis. So we have, for example, um, looking at deposits and samples um, to see the sorts of crops that were grown, the different sorts of food people ate through environmental analyses. So in this case, you'll be looking through a microscope at pollen and seeds and pips and insect remains. And this sort of work can really feed into what the countryside looked like in the past, what sorts of crops were being grown, what sorts of plants were around people's farmsteads, even the sorts of weeds that were present. And then also we've got uh, identification of mollusks and other invertebrates. Um, they can tell us about environmental conditions in the past. And also look at other things like um, sed uh, sedimentation and 
uh, pollen analysis through cores and timbers. Timbers are really useful for looking at um, the dating perhaps of a building and for that we use dendrochronology. The, the rings of the tree can be very influential and, and tell us a lot about, for example, the date of the timber. Also radiocarbon dating, um, that's another technique where we can say quite precisely about the age of organic remains if we have them, wood, charcoal, bone, if it, it can get um, analysed and we can say quite precisely about the date of these sorts of things through scientific analysis. Animal bones, I've mentioned before, looking at those uh, very carefully, we can see the sort of different ways animals were butchered. That can tell us a lot about people's diet. And of course, human bones, we can tell a lot about how people lived in the past. We can find out about their gender, their age of death, and possibly even about how they died, the sort of conditions in which they were living in. Isotope analysis is another scientific uh, technique. By looking at people's uh, teeth, we can say a lot about how they um, were living at an early age, the diet uh, in their youth, and we can also say about the sorts of conditions uh, where they were living at in their early years. This is all recorded in our teeth, and by isotopic analysis, we can look at people's origins and early lives. And also pottery can tell us a lot about how people were cooking and how people were storing food. All these sorts of things can be looked at once you know where to start. And of course, archaeology is a discipline that's been going for a long time. We've got plenty of material in museums like the Ashmolean Museum here in Oxford, the British Museum in London, plenty of information in museums. And a lot of this information can be looked at again and again using information that we now have at our fingertips to re-examine um, objects uh, that have been perhaps found many years ago. There's a new project, for example, called the Excavating Pit Rivers. The Pit Rivers Museum is just around the corner as well from here. And a lot of the material from the Pit Rivers Museum is being reanalyzed in light of new uh, information that we have. And we mustn't also forget, for the historic period, we've got maps and documents to help us. So as archaeologists, we can look at a site um, we look at the published material about that site and in particular historic maps and other historic documents can be really revealing and tell us a lot about um, a past area. Geological maps also can tell us about uh, the land use of a place or in a region. And also plenty of work has been undertaken already in some areas and that can be brought together and, and collated to look at new questions that we might want to ask. So there's a great diversity of evidence, and all of this comes together to form the discipline of archaeology. And here we have some shots of our students um, undertaking various uh, techniques in archaeology. Um, we have an excavation here. This excavation is our training excavation, so students uh, on courses here can take part in a training excavation. It's at Dorchester on Thames, which is just eight miles from Oxford in the southeast of Oxford. Um, it's um, an excavation that runs in July and students have one week there and they learn all the techniques of digging, uh, recording the information that's found, photography and, and finds analysis, all the different techniques that um, are involved in excavation. And uh, Dorchester, of course, has a very rich history and the students at the moment are looking at the Roman town, so they're within the Roman walls looking at the uh, Roman features that have been um, revealed through archaeology.
And we've talked already about survey, geophysical survey, and um, topographical survey. So here we have students in action undertaking these sorts of surveys with the equipment that you need to have uh, expertise in using, but that expertise will give you. And also post-excavation analysis. So looking at the bits and bobs that are um, discovered through excavation, they need to be analysed, identified, recorded, and brought together to build up a picture of a site. And these students, in this, these three slides over here, are all involved in a project called the Archaeology of East Oxford project. And this is the project that Jane's involved in. So I'll hand over to you now, Jane, to tell us a little bit more about that project. Should I go and sit, uh, yeah. sit there? Good morning, just is still. Um, please, as I'm going along, um, if any of you have got any questions or there's something that you would just like to stop and ask about, please do interrupt. Um, I don't necessarily want to just um, go along uh, myself. Okay, the Archaeology of East Oxford project uh, is a big community archaeology project which has been running for three years um, and is entering its fourth and final year for the moment anyway. Um, and has been funded partly by the Heritage Lottery Fund, uh, partly by the university, and very much in kind by this department. And myself and my two colleagues on the project are based in this department. So there has been an awful lot of interaction between the department and um, the project itself, and a large number of the students who are involved in the department have come and joined us on the project. Um, now, the idea of this project um, is that we should involve local people in the whole archaeological process, the process that Alison was talking about, from the very beginnings of doing background research, through all the survey techniques, through excavation, through all the post-excavation work, including all the writing up, um, and eventual publishing. And we have got three quarters of the way through that process um, on the project, and uh, we're at the moment at, at pulling together a lot of information um, before we start publishing. There's still various things ongoing, so you could still join in if you wanted to. How many of you are actually from Oxford? Are you all from Oxford? Yeah? No? Anyone from East Oxford? Yes. Right. This is the area we're working with, okay? Um, would you like the lights down a bit? Would that help to, to see? Um, Alison, did you? Okay, so this is the area we're working with. Um, it's a suburban landscape. It isn't um, a city centre. Uh, it's, a, it's a sort of standard suburbs, a very diverse area. Um, and you can see the Thames, I hope, just about running down, down through East Oxford here. Uh, and you can see the more regular streets of the 19th century suburbanisation. East Oxford became a suburb very rapidly um, from the mid-19th century onwards. Uh, the, the, the sort of streets started rolling out across what had been an agricultural landscape. And you can see, if you look, can you see these greener and more irregular areas that are dotted around in the landscape? Those are the old hearts of the agricultural landscape. Um, and they are one of the targets that we've been working on because um, what the project will show you as I talk through is all the sorts of things that you can do um, if you become part um, of the sorts of archaeology that we're doing at, at this department. Um, and how are we going to investigate this sort of landscape? All the things that Alison mentioned have come into play. Um, we've done background research, we've done geophysical survey, 
um, you notice that there are actually quite a lot of green spaces in East Oxford, and we've utilised all of those, either to excavate or to do geophysics. Um, you can uh, dig lots of tiny little test pits. Now, test pits are very wonderful things. They're tiny excavations. They're a metre square, and we do everything like an excavation. You learn all the techniques. You learn how to dig um, with a trowel. You learn how to record. You learn how to photograph. You learn how to draw. But it's all terribly contained, and we've done over 70 of these in people's back gardens, in parks, in a lot all over the place and it gives you um, more is better and you the, the sort of some of the parts is is much greater um, than, than them individually because they give you a sort of a, uh, a scattering of information about the geology about the archaeology about the age of various parts of the landscape and they've helped us begin to build up a series of landscapes, a series of pictures of the landscapes that used to be across this area of what is now an ordinary suburb. Um, and it's been a very exciting process. Um, and all the way through, um, apart from myself and Olaf, who are the two active, on-the-ground um, professional archaeologists, everything has been done by our volunteers, by local people. We have over 600 people involved. Um, and they have learnt to do every single one of the techniques which Alison has mentioned, um, including all the post-excavation techniques, all the writing up, drawing, everything. Uh, so it's been very exciting um, doing that. Now, look at that map and hold it in your head. And this has one of been one of the really helpful maps, I hope you can see it well enough, that we've used over the past... Um, three years, because obviously some of the really important things that we do are the background research, and we've had people looking at all the college archives, we're blessed with all the um, estate maps and all the records that the colleges have, and we've been into almost all the libraries um, looking at things, um, and also researching all the old ordnance survey maps, the tithe maps, um, the enclosure maps from the 19th century, um, and place names. So all these things have been going on. So even if you're not into digging and getting dirty, there are all sorts of other things that you can become involved with. Um, and we have some people who do one thing, some people who do almost everything, if they possibly can. But you can see from this map, um, as I mentioned, that this was an agricultural landscape. And for hundreds and hundreds of years, the area of what, what is now East Oxford looked more or less like this, where you have little villages like Ifley and Temple Cowley um, and St. Clement's and Littlemore scattered across a well-used, um, very um, productive agricultural landscape which, as the city grows, gets more and more linked into the city but has an identity of its own as well and it's that that we've been um, exploring. Just out of that map. That map, that's there. It's 1830, 1833. So it's it's just before um, the, the the very first of the of the OS maps. It's around the period that the Ordnance Survey maps are starting to come out. There are earlier ones because um, the Ordnance Survey teams, when they first went out collecting the data for the Ordnance Survey maps, produced original drawings um, of an area. And there's one for East Oxford in the British Museum, which we've been to see um, as a, as a group. And they're much more detailed and very fascinating. Um, Okay. Just, just very briefly, this is one of the maps that our place names group have produced. And you can see this is just particular sorts of names. Um, these are names to do with fauna. Um, so you can see that the kidneys um, in Ify is Kite Island, which is rather nice. 
um, that we've got somewhere called Wigmead or Beetle Meadow um, down near Littlemore. Um, and you see the other names here that give you clues, these old place names, about how the landscape was used. And they've gone through every conceivable sort of place name, um, place names to do with um, the sort of soil, um, to do with uh, the flowers, the trees, um, with people's names, all sorts of things, to use them to build up, again, this picture of the landscape, because this is what we're after. How did the landscape look? How was it used? What were the people doing? What were they up to um, in, the, you know, in the, the sort of hundreds and thousands of years, indeed, um, that this East Oxford landscape has been in use? I mentioned test pits um, as being a really useful tool. And they're, they're really fun to do as well, because a lot of the time, you're in someone's back garden. And so people are producing cakes and tea and coffee and you can sit around and chat and you can do your archaeology. And it's very, it's very nice, intimate, fun thing to do. Um, and we've done, I think, almost every possible sort of house and open space you can think of in the, in the last three years. Um, this is one, uh, a series of test pits that we did. Who knows um, Bartlemus Chapel off the Cowley Road? If you haven't been, it is a lovely little gem of East Oxford. It's a 14th century chapel off the Cowley Road. And it is the core of what was a 12th century leper hospital. And we, it's preserved in a fairly green landscape. It's got allotments and playing fields around it, as well as a couple of private houses. And we knew there was an opportunity to find out more about the leper hospital because of that. Um, and most leper hospitals from that period, there were a lot of them from the 12th, 13th centuries, um, haven't been well preserved because they've been, been so encroached upon, you lose evidence. This one wasn't and was under-researched. All of East Oxford was under-researched because inevitably the focus was on the historic city centre. And we dug five little test pits round where the 14th century chapel is and found out a lot about previous wall alignments. You can see another wa <coughs> a wall in that. You don't often hit walls in test pits, but we have hit quite a few, actually, relatively speaking. Um, and we found out about the way in which they'd added manure um, and sand to the clay land to build it up and to make it more productive um, for the leper's farm. Um, we found a test bit that was full of um, uh, ironworking debris because there was a smithy nearby. So we were already beginning to find out little bits and pieces about this leper hospital landscape using old maps. There's um, an old map showing one of the um, older buildings on the site in red. The chapel's just peeping in the corner and that red line is this wall that we found showing you a completely different set of walls even to that old map and that's from the very, very early 19th century. Um, but you didn't just get the fun of digging the test pit up if you're part of this. All the writing up the test pits, and they're all up on our website, was done by the volunteers who were involved, not by us. We then went on, in the end, to excavate at Bartlemus Chapel. That was our first big excavation. And again, this was the chance, as Alison was saying, for um, the students at Dorchester, for our volunteers and for a number of students from the department to learn the whole process of excavation. Um, and it was an absolutely brilliant few weeks. We found a 12th century chapel, lots of burials, a little um, cell where a leper lived, um, a workshop, a detached bell tower. It was a fascinating exhibition, um, exhibition, excavation, <laughs> and we had the lovely weather um, of autumn 2011. So it was a bit idyllic that, but it was um, a really, a really good. Um, uh, experience and all our reports of that excavation are up on 
um, the project website. We did another major excavation at the end of 2012. Now, does anyone recognise this? Has anyone been to this pub? Well, it was a pub out near the Kassam Stadium. This was the Priory pub. Um, you can see the standing building. The pub closed only recently and is at the moment standing um, empty and unused. But it's right next to the um, uh, cinema and bowling complex. You can see sort of lurking behind. It's very improbable. And then right next to that, the, the football stadium. You see, just like the leper hospital, in these seemingly normal, ordinary suburbs, all these little things pop up that you can explore. And this was another opportunity to use all our landscape techniques. So we did, again, lots of test pits to explore the sorts of geology and the sorts of survival of archaeology. Um, we did survey, um, and we did both topographical and geophysical survey. And then the opportunity arose in a field next door to the, to, to the Priory pub to do an excavation. Now, the Priory pub is 15th century. In essence, it's been added to and, and built up, but it was part of um, a nunnery, nun and, um, which was founded in the mid-12th century. And again, we knew very little about the early history of the nunnery, um, a little bit more about its later history before its dissolution, but not about its early history. And this was our opportunity. Um, and this was actually a much bigger scale excavation. Um, and by then, of course, everyone had started to build all their skills up. And we were able both to um, expand people's skills and draw in new people um, to take part. Um, and there you can see one of our trenches here next to the standing building where we found part of the, ra the cloisters, the, ra the claustral range attached to the nunnery, probably um, a, do um, a dining hall, maybe a guest house, um, and not just the lovely foundations of the building, um, beautifully built in stone with lots of associated decorated floor tiles and green glazed roof tiles, it was beautiful, um, but a massive great midden. And Alison was talking about using environmental evidence, so we found evidence for what the nuns were eating in the 12th and 13th century, and they weren't doing too badly. They had fish ponds, and so they were eating all sorts of fish and eel. Um, they were eating oysters, which had come up from the south coast. Um, we found pig, um, cattle, sheep, deer. So although you know, it's an ecclesiastical institution, um, it was a s relatively small but quite you know, well-run and, and affluent little place that was doing quite nicely, thank you. Um, it fell on its suppers later on, but, but for the first 200 years, it was clearly doing all right. Um, and we also did a, a, a trench towards the edge of the nunnery precinct. Now, nunneries were often defined by big ditches or moats um, to show where the extent of the, of the buildings and, and the, the, the sort of associated outbuildings was. And these slots here mark where we found a little moat which fed into their system of fish ponds that marked the site. So we're on the edge of the site with two buildings, one which was a, a, a house, a domestic building with lots of associated um, bits and pieces um, that you would expect to find in a house of the 12th, 13th century. Again, very nicely built. We suspect someone like the priest or the farm manager may have lived there because, of course, they needed a priest um, to come in and do the services. And at the top, a really nice um, outbuilding where they were doing metalworking and um, where they were drying grain um, and doing other sorts of semi-agricultural um, industrial things. So we're getting a lovely picture of how they were using the landscape and how their precinct was laid out. That just shows you some of the, the surviving foundations um, of the, the house. 
And again, as a consequence of all that, as Alison said, um, there were all these things we found. Um, and again, at this stage, all the volunteers were taught the processes you have to go through. They always say for one day digging, you have to do four days back in the lab or the office or the drawing room or what have you. Um, and this is what we did. So people have been writing reports. They've been processing all the tile and the pottery and the bone and the metalwork. They've been doing drawings, um, collating all the information um, and producing the reports so that they're going right through the whole process um, as they go along um, to help us build up this landscape picture. Okay, are there any questions anyone has about um, what I've been talking about? So just an, yeah. Is that reported on the website, that Minchery? Of Minchery. The Bartimus one is all up there yeah. on our website. The Minchery one will be shortly, because um, that's, that's all still in, in process. Who owns that site now? It's the university. Oh, so it ceased to be a pub. Oh, the site. Oh, you mean the, the site, not the, the website, oh, yeah. the pub. <laughs> <laughs> okay. S I T. It is owned by the council, actually, um, which we we didn't realise originally, but it is leased to Mr. Kassam. Where we were digging is council land, and will eventually get scheduled. Yeah. I remember it being a pub, and I noticed that it closed down yes. quite some time ago. Yeah. No, I don't know what's going to happen. Obviously, it's a listed building, so hopefully something constructive, creative, and, and respectful will be done with it. But um, I think the people of Littlemore um, who came and worked on the excavation are keeping a good eye on it. Yeah. See what happens. Any other questions? Yeah. I'm thinking about the um, test pits that might mm -hmm. be in somebody's backyard, for example. Um, how do you go about deciding where you're going to put the test pits? Very good question, because obviously when you're doing a a bigger excavation, we're about to do one next week actually, a, a sort of mini big excavation, targeting a geophysical anom anomaly, so something we found doing geophysics. Now you can't do that in back gardens because unless it's someone with an enormous back garden, you don't get the area. So what you do is you first of all, you check where the gas, the gas, the electricity and the water are, <laughs> so you're not going to hit anything, um, and then you look, you ask as much as you can and find out as much as you can about the past use of that area so that you avoid where the shed used to be or where you know there's been disruption and you try and avoid the big roots of, of trees um, and that generally means you end up with very few places you can actually so do it. Oh you mean where we locate them individually? Yes there is, there is. Oh. There, um, we've targeted those medieval villages um, to look at their growth and contraction and dating so we've clustered on um, little more um, Blackbird Leaves to look at the Roman sites, Temple Cowley, Church Cowley, Ifley, St. Clements. And then we've done a good scattering outside as a corrective. So we've got a kind of random sample. So it's basically, a, a, a in essence, random sampling with, with, with an underlying yes. um, medieval village target. Yes, sorry, that's... Um, I'm just wondering if you saw um, the use of community-based projects Personally, I do, and I think, I suspect that the sort of structure of archaeology is going to change a bit. Um, I think it's like history archaeology. It doesn't make any sense to do it unless 
everybody gets to know about it because it, the archaeology is about where we live, not, not me as a professional archaeologist, but where you all live. And so it seems to me very important that um, it's very open and that's where a department like this comes in as well. Um, and also that you will only get the funding and the interest and the support for archaeological investigation if people feel that it's important and that they are going to learn and get something interesting out of it. So I think it's going to be really important. Um, as you know, there are all sorts of other pressures on commercial and academic archaeology that we can move forward all together um, and drawing in um, the people who should really be knowing and learning about our archaeology. So yes, um, but that, that's a personal opinion. Um, but there are signs, that little, you know, little signs, I think. Does that mean in a way that the most important output of your project is not actually the archaeology? but the model of the social structure of how you can do archaeology like this. It's certainly for Most us it was really important because nobody's done a big archaeology project in a suburb before. So the way in which we did it was really important, our methodology. Um, and, and for us, the, the, the teaching, um, the learning, the involvement um, was as important as the archaeology. I mean, the archaeology has turned out to be fantastic, but it is a really important model for... Um, for the way in which you can do it, I think that's what we were trying. We set out with that, with that as, a, as an underlying aim as well, um, so that you know we hope more of this sort of thing can be done in similar kinds of places where we all live. We all live in suburbs, um, mm. and there had been relatively little archaeology. So, in from suburbs. that perspective, what was your most unexpected lesson? I think, in a way, most unexpected was how willing people have been to a let their gardens be dug up that's slightly trivial but also right. the way in which people have mixed i mean we have it's it's been we've redrawn networks i think in on a small way in the project because you know how when you live in an area actually you go from a to b and b to c and that's what you do and you don't know about what's going on here or there and so you have your own little networks and what we've done is we said actually come over here and look at what's going on here um and so we've got people all muddled up across their normal networks and in a very um, unusual sort of way. And that's because it's archaeology. And people feel that if you live in somewhere, it belongs to you, so it's yours, and so it doesn't matter who you are. You just sort of all... And it, that's happened, and you don't know if it is going to. And so I, I've had huge um, respect for people's just sort of, this is what we're going to do. We're all going to do archaeology, and we're all just going to do it together. And that's, that's been a real surprise, actually, how much that happened. From individuals, no, because we didn't ask them, people came to us. We'd, we'd send out um, an email to all the volunteers and say, look, we'd like to this weekend concentrate, you know, this weekend in two months' time, on digging gardens in Littlemore, and we'd get people to volunteer their gardens. Um, so and that was absolutely no problem. Getting permission from the council was uh, more difficult. <laughs> um, and, but in the end, fine. It just required a lot more negotiation um, and preparation and getting permission from sort of the diocese and 
colleges and things was, was, was fine and that it helped coming from the department because we were a kind of known quantity from that is point of view. Well, it is because you can imagine health and safety, all those sorts of things, insurance, blah, blah, blah. there's a lot of that as well as just all the, I mean, arranging for equipment and all that kind of thing is what we do, but, but those sorts of things are what you have to plan ahead and take time with and care and thought about. Yeah. Yeah. It's never too early to start on that. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. How did you involve in the excavation of the site? Uh, sometimes you might come across afterwards which need to be uh, confirmed. Yes. You, a couple, where do you, uh, you must have an area where conservation of artifacts are preserved. Yes. And the temperatures are related back to. Is there an area in Oxford? It depends on what the arti artifact is. It's a very good question because some things, um, once we've got them out of the ground and they've been cleaned in whatever's the most suitable way, um, as long as they're kept in a stable environment, are fine. There are other things which become unstable and have to be looked after. And we've got resources in, for example, the Pitt Rivers Museum um, at some of the... We've worked very closely with our big commercial archaeology um, unit in Oxford, Oxford Archaeology. They have resources, um, Stand Lake, which is our museum store, and also in some university departments. So it sort of depends precisely on what it is and what condition it's in. Um, but that's another advantage of being sort of plugged into a university network is that we, we will know someone who we can bring in to, to tell people what needs to be done and, and do what's necessary. So it's a very important aspect, yes. And of course some things can be hazardous, like lead, for example. You have to be a bit careful about how you deal with old lead and things like that. So, um, yes. How many articles were preserved in the seven areas? We're going to, the, for example, um, a lot goes into storage but those that are going to be displayed will end up in a museum somewhere. Um, so it depends on, on what it is. Um, and they need to be accessible for people to, to, to research if they want to. So, the last question, how and where do you publish your results and what do you regard as the outcome for a project like this? Um, for this project, we've got a number of outcomes. There are a lot of uh, reports and research things up on our website already. Um, and all, um, for example, all the pottery reports from Bartlemas and all the bone, all those things are up on the website. We will be producing both academic journal articles because we've funding from the university to do that, but also a book which will be um, sort of edited and produced by a group of our core volunteers with us, which will summarize all our findings um, as a set of landscapes and our excavations. Um, so there's a sort of range of outputs and the website will be um, curated for quite some time as a non-active one once we've finished um, within the university network. So there's all sorts of outcomes and we hope things like notice boards and stuff as well. Okay. Well thank you everybody for uh, coming today and I think we just spent a few more minutes now just talking about what we do here in the department in terms of archaeology, because I'm sure um, you might be interested in taking part. So if you've got this leaflet here, that's got a sort of summary of what we do in archaeology, but I'll just explain a little bit more, and you're very welcome to ask questions as well. 